is Kat. And this is Phoebe, with a special guest on Feminine Chaos. Yes, Tara Henley, welcome to the podcast. Will you introduce yourself and tell everyone who you are and what you do? Thanks, Kat, and thanks, Phoebe. Uh, I am Tara Henley. I am a journalist in Canada. I've been a journalist for about 20 years now. Uh, I have worked in magazines, newspapers, online. Um, I have worked in TV and radio. Most of my recent career was in radio current affairs. I recently wrote a book called Lean Out, and I now have a podcast and substack by that same name. Excellent. And you're a fellow Torontonian, right? So we are the, um, we are outnumbering the American contingent today. <laughs> yes, indeed. In chaos. Yes. Whatever, you know, as, as Americans, like, well, Phoebe, I mean, I don't know. I am do American. You, yes, do you so. even count? No, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't count. I'm like, it's like two and a half men, two and a half Canadians, one and a half Canadians, one and a half Americans, something yeah, like that. You're really straddling the line. You're bridging this otherwise unbridgeable gap between America and Canada, which are yeah. such different places. Well, you can't bring fruit across the border, so it's got to be a different country. Yeah. That's, that's how you know. The important thing is that we're all dog owners. That is important. Fluffy dogs, I believe. Indeed. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, that's true. Thank God we've got all of this in common. Otherwise, we might have had to uh, have a North American war <laughs> right here on the podcast. In honor of the queen. <laughs> oh, my queen. My, my queen, apparently, because I <laughs> live in the Commonwealth. Um, so we're talking about leaning out today. Um, leaning in, leaning out, leaning left, leaning right. Why are we talking about leaning out today? What's going on? Well... So Helen Andrews, who is not one of the people you are hearing from today, but who is somebody who um, wrote something we're going to talk about, uh, wrote a piece that's actually, um, it's the transcript of a speech um, that this appeared in American Mind, and it is called Lean Out, okay? Also called Lean Out. Tara, are you okay with that? (laughs) It's, uh, it's become a popular name. There's actually a couple books named that now, as, as well as a number of articles and podcasts. Hmm. 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 Lots of, lots of out, outward leaning. Um, and it, so it's called Why Women Can't Have It All. And all of the leaning out is in reference, of course, to Sheryl uh, Sandberg's uh, Lean In book slash movement slash pinata i don't i don't feel like it's very popular these days right people leaned in so far that they face planted and everyone was like what (laughs) what we were told and so now we're all dealing with the backlash of that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this was um this obviously the topic of what cheryl sandberg got wrong could be you know like libraries could be filled with um you know thoughts on this but to just sort of narrow it down, um, there here is Helen Andrews has one angle on this, and we can I think we're going to discuss this a bit um, because so Tara, what does it mean for a woman to have it all? Well, I, I don't think it's possible to have it all. Um, but but what is it? What is the all? What is the, the it? all? Is, all is is basically you are able to have a pretty demanding career and you also have a family, so you do you know all of the things that your mother did but you also work like a man and um we've seen this sort of narrative i think really fall apart in the last decade and so i feel like helen andrews is a little bit late on this actually like i've seen discourse on this dating back to like 2012 um but i suppose it's a whole new generation now and a whole kind of reiterating of this argument um but just like for my own position on all of this, I, I grew up very progressive. I grew up feminist and I certainly agreed with a lot of what I learned growing up. But I really started to question all of this. I'm 46 now and about, about like in my late 30s, I started to really question a lot of this. And I actually, the diagnosis that Helen Andrews makes in this piece, I do agree. With. I, I think it's, I think it's super unrealistic, and I think that uh, it's sort of set a generation of women up for a lot of pain. However, I totally disagree with her first 
here. I don't agree with any of the policy suggestions that she makes, which I guess is why I'm not a conservative. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so I felt like I, I would say that there was like 5% of this article that I agreed with and like 95 that had me just screaming. <laughs> So the 5% I agreed with was this whole idea that young women are told a lot about sort of how to prevent pregnancy, the importance of having a career and all of this, but not the fact that, you know, like women can only have babies till a certain age, you know, it's not an exact age, but, you know, a certain zone when it's just not going to be possible anymore. Um, And that if you want to have children, you really can't start thinking about like, maybe find who you're going to have them with and all of this at like not at, on an individual level. Sure. But like as on a population level, it doesn't really work to start thinking about that. Like she says at 35 and we, like, exactly. I think, you know, there's this kind of, and this is something I've written about before as well, where like there's this kind of progressive notion that you should not think at all about settling down, about having children, um, any of this until you're this one specific magical age, like maybe 27, although maybe it'd be a little older, now and then suddenly you have to think you have to just do it all immediately or you're too late it's this weird uh thing where women are supposed to pretend that there is none of this family sort like the feminist idea is that you have to pretend that you're never going to want all of this until this day comes when you're 27 when you're 30 whatever when you're suddenly supposed to care about this so i think that that critique that is in here is somewhere buried in the helen andrews uh speech slash article and is true. I think that's fair. And I think that there are plenty of, I don't know if I, it may be a little exaggerated in this, but that there are women who are, you know, otherwise informed about the world, but who imagine that they can start families, you know, at 70 and then are taken aback when that doesn't happen. Um, The 95% I disagree with kind of comes down, well, like they're really sort of I mean, I could go on for hours and hours and I, I will try to avoid doing that. But it's sort of two things. One is that like this idea that what does it mean to to be a stay at home mom? Is it of a baby or of somebody till they're 18 or of multiple somebodies till they're 18, which you're, you could be talking about like 25 years of your life? Like what what does it mean? And it seems like there's this kind of commonplace in the sort of trad traditionalist world idea of like the stay-at-home mom who's like holding her baby and the baby's nursing and she's wearing the flowing dress and all of this but like once the baby's not a baby anymore she probably is going to want something to fill her time with and unless she's um extremely unless her family's extremely wealthy it's probably going to be some sort of paid work and then which you know, so if she's been fully, fully out of the workforce for a long time, it's going to be harder for her to get back there. Um, so then the question, which brings up this other question, which is, is like in a world that is set up in a society that is set up to require effectively two incomes, is it actually the family friendly thing as per Helen Andrews for a boss to refuse to hire any woman with small children because he just cares so, so much of her, the little children. (laughs) When it's like, why does the woman want to work? Well, maybe because she has children and wants to support them. Even if she has a husband who also works, that's just necessary in this world. And even if you wish that were not the case, it is. Um, So it's these two parts combined. It's the fact that women do want to work if not when they have a six-week-old baby, then, you know, maybe when they have a three-year-old, maybe when they have a one-year-old, maybe when they have a five-year-old, whatever. But they do generally want to go back to work and have to. So why not? Like, like I guess I just don't really understand what this whole sort of restructuring society to allow women to stay home with a nine-year-old. Like, I'm not really sure what that's about. Anyway, that was too long. Sorry. But that was my mini rant it could have been so much longer and rantier (laughs) i love that your mini rants are like most persons average sized rant (laughs) you should see the document you should see the written document and the punctuation and the yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. So Tara, I'm curious. Um, we have an interesting kind of um, like age increment span here. Mm -hmm. You're 46. I'm 40. Phoebe is not yet 40. Um, That's right. I, I'm, so, I've celebrated my first 39th birthday. Oh, congratulations. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on this question from the point of view of, so I'm going to ask you personal questions. One is, are you married? And two is, do you have children? I'm not married. I'm not single, but I'm not married. And I, I do not have children. Okay. So as somebody who, you know, like according to this sort of prescriptive idea of, of the path, did not have it all, does not have it all, is probably not going to have it all. What's your perspective on what Helen Andrews gets right in this piece and what she gets wrong. You know, where do you see eye to eye with her? Where do you think she's identifying like a real problem? So I, this is obviously a pretty personal topic for me and so personal that I made a very personal documentary about it uh, <laughs> when I was 39 for the CBC. Uh, I'm still slightly mortified that I did that. Um, but you know, it came from a place of not just my own sort of pain over these issues, but also like quite a lot of interviewing of uh, women my age over a course of a number of months. And what I discovered in that interviewing was that there's a number of structural things that are just not getting talked about. And, you know, the first being work. So the fact that we're all in the workplace now is one thing, but also how the workplace has changed in especially the last decade, but really in the last couple of decades that productivity is way up, precarious work is up, um, stress is up, around the clock connectivity with smartphones. I mean, work has become very competitive. It has become very time consuming and, um, and it really takes up a lot of people's psyches very stressful endeavor at this point in kind of advanced capitalism. So that's the first thing that people talked about a lot. The other thing people talked a lot about was parenting and how much parenting has become this like mini profession in and of itself. I mean, when I was young in the seventies, um, you know, I was born in 75. So when I was young in the late seventies and early eighties, it was really a time of like, I mean, Gen Xers joke about benign neglect, but like you really were sent out for like eight, 12 hours a day and, and went to play with other kids. And parenting was not this like super around the clock, um, kind of all consuming thing either. So those are two things people talked about. And then uh, the housing crisis plays a huge role in all of this. I mean, it's just very in Toronto very, very hard to find a place to rent that's affordable, let alone a place to buy. And there's very little stability for the current generations. Um, and then there's also dating, which has changed massively in my lifetime. We can talk more about that later, but dating itself has become this kind of full-time job for people and very stressful and um, requires a lot of time, and a lot of energy and a lot of ups and downs and disappointments for people. And then there's also this sort of ethos of, uh, of feminism. And, you know, I just read Louise Perry's book and had her on my podcast about maximum freedom. And it has changed uh, the rules between men and women profoundly. And I, I would argue, I agree with her and I agree with like Christine Emba, her book, Rethinking Sex, that the guardrails have all come down. And so we really don't know what we're dealing with at this point. And, so I think all of those factors combined um, have made it so that women are in a really bizarre position. And it is a historically unprecedented position. We've never had this many single women adults before. We've never had this many childless women before. Um, and I, you know, in my own lifetime, I think, I don't think that I really thought through the issue of children in any significant way until it was too late. And, you know, not to, I mean, that, that was a heartbreak of my life. I will say that. I really regret that. Um, and I, I would like us to be able to have a more open conversation with the next generation about what is actually possible. And so I agree completely with Helen Andrews on that. I don't think you can have it all. I think we have suppressed that conversation but when she gets to her policy prescriptions, I don't think they're grounded in reality at all. The idea that, 
you know, we shouldn't be funding paid maternity leave, for example, or as you pointed out, Phoebe, that we should have, you know, male bosses not hiring women with children, with small children. Like these are just not, they're not at all grounded in the economic realities that most people face. And I, I find that a little offensive. Oh man. <laughs> I have like a million things that I want to talk about that came out of, out of that, that little piece. But uh, there's something that I do want to kind of linger on, um, which is what seems like a kind of a widespread failure of imagination um, or like a narrowing of what we consider to be possible slash acceptable paths for people to take. Um, I think that Helen Andrews does identify something that's real about this in the part of her, it's an essay or a speech, a speech that became an essay, whatever, um, that where she, where she talks about how male dominated industries are kind of like on the outs and the pink collar jobs have become like more and more the, the bulk of the economy. And that this is having an impact on, you know, what paths men can take, not just what paths women can take. So the idea that we need to reinvest in the idea of men as, you know, gainfully employed as contributors, you know, let alone as breadwinners, seems to me like something that's, that's probably worth looking at. On the other hand, I think that there's, um, you know, similarly, or maybe conversely, a real failure to imagine that women you know, might not want or might actually need a path that's more than just, I raised children and I found fulfillment there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you were saying, we have so many more childless millennial women now, you know, our generation is, is big on that in a way that's unprecedented. And so we're literally staring down the reality right now of, of what it looks like for women to choose a different path. And it's like people's brains are breaking. You know, they don't want to consider, like, how can we fit this in? How can we make it possible for women to, you know, who have interior lives, who have desires, who want to work in the same way that men do and want to contribute in the same way that men do? Like, how do we figure out a way for them to not have it all? but have like some maybe of it all have some of everything have a, a diverse existence that doesn't just confine them to the role of, of mother um so do you have any thoughts on well I guess maybe like I, I guess I want to ask what about the men like can we talk about them for a second mm -hmm. how do they fit in here <laughs> well you know I mean I also interviewed a lot of men for that documentary um that I made and I heard, I have a lot of empathy for the position that men are in right now. You, you just mentioned that policy suggestion that Helen Andrews had, which was probably the only one on her list where I kind of thought about that more deeply than the other ones. And we do know that men are, um, are having a really tough time right now. Like you just need to look at the suicide statistics or the opioid crisis statistics. There's a lot of deaths of despair. There is a crisis of meaning. There is a crisis of employment. We know sort of with the dating landscape, I had Rob Henderson on my podcast and he talked about how the dating apps are really serving this small kind of pool of alpha males. And there's, I, I can't remember if this is the number, but something like 80% of men are just not getting any dates at all. And, um, and are really suffering for connection and for companionship and for, you know, basic things like the ability to sit down with someone at the end of the day and, and talk about your day. You know, we, we know going through the pandemic, how, how painful it was to have such limited social contact. So I feel a lot of empathy for all of that. And I think, um, I think in the same way that, that whatever state we're in right now, this weird renegotiation um, of our society, I think it's not serving men as well as not serving women. Mm -hmm. um, I want to just jump in on the whole policy question, though, because I think there's something like, um, I want to say elephant in the room, and it's sort of appropriate because it is about the Republican Party in the United States, um, which is the reason, like, if you're talking about what has been the conservative stance in the United States on stay at home moms over the years, what you kind of run up against um, 
is that there's economically there's been a real demonization of you know the so-called welfare queens you know women who are not in the paid workforce are unemployed there's no you know what i mean like there's no sort of stay-at-home mom in a way you know like women are by republicans and democrats expected to be in the paid workforce or are considered sort of moochers and i think that that's something that the that um that somehow i feel like the sort of pro that, that the sort of trad side of things doesn't entirely reckon with like under which circumstances should society and, and this has also come up a lot um in the wake of uh the overturning of roe v wade in the states um so this is something I wrote about actually for Matthew Iglesias's um, Substack. Um, his commenters were mad at me, and I've already forgotten why. But um, <laughs> but basically, that this whole idea that there's going to be now that you know with abortion, you know, potentially banned and actually banned in um, many states, that basically uh, this will sort of shepherd the way to a more um, family friendly world but it's like you can't really have that when you also have this kind of austerity on the right and this um sense that like the that families that you can't help families and also that a woman who's not working an able-bodied adult woman who's not working is an able-bodied adult who's not working um so that's what something that i feel is kind of missing from this discussion that if you're going to say that society should be structured for women to, um, you know, stay home with their children. Who are these women? Like, how is this all working? You know what I mean? Like, who's funding this? And if the reality is that many men aren't even in the workforce at all, or not, or sort of underemployed, or, you know, not like what, who are the, it's only like this sort of family structure is something that you only see in sort of two places at this point, which would be like really rich people, right? Like you do see really, really rich men who can have, you know, a stay at home, like true stay at home wife. I don't mean a woman who works a lot of, of different jobs, but then like put stay at home mom in a profile, like in an avatar, ah, I can't, bio, like a Twitter bio or Facebook, whatever. Or you have people who are like extremely frugal sort of homesteader types, maybe. Yes. Um, but yeah, I guess that, so that was a sort of long-winded way of saying like, what, what do conservatives want? Not what do women want? What do conservatives want? Like, who is the stay-at-home mom who's paying for this? Yeah, I don't think it's, it's expensive. I don't think it's grounded in reality. I just don't think it is. So something that, that, um, I remembered Phoebe, as you were talking was that, I feel like this stigmatization of stay-at-home moms and this expectation that women are going to be working outside the home is something – I'm just trying to think how recent it is that this was actually kind of part of the Republican ethos because I do remember – I want to say it was like 2012 um, when you had uh, the election between – Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, that there was a lot of noise on the left about Mitt Romney's wife not ever having worked outside the home. And it was it became like a source of controversy where somebody, and I don't remember who it was, so, you know, excuse me for, for being very vague on this, but someone said, you know, she's never worked a day in her life or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and she had to like get on TV and say, I raised like a million children and it was hard work. So this is, this is what I oh. remember being, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that this was... At the time, and I guess, you know, it was 10 years ago now, um, but the, there was still very much a politicized discussion of this where it was still valued by conservatives for women to be stay-at-home moms. Um, there was a sense that, like, this was sort of the ideal path for you if you were a woman and the the ideal thing for a family, and that um, the left did a certain amount to kind of stigmatize that as a form of laziness Mm. so I think I could I I don't know that I could answer this with like dates and 
percentages or whatever. But like, I think that when that there's a stigmatization of the stay at home mom as like, in the sort of mommy wars, old timey sense of like, there are the feminist go getters. And then there are the, you know, stay at home moms who like to bake cookies. But I think what this is, is something a little different, which is more the sort of like, it's almost like a privilege call out. It's like, you were able to afford to stay at home, whereas the whereas regular women have to work. So you know what I mean? Like, I think that's a slightly different type of objection. So it's not so much like with with um, Mitt Romney and Anne Romney. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, it is Anne Thank Romney. You. So in the course of you um, talking, I managed to dig this up. Uh, it was Democratic strategist, excuse me, Democratic strategist Hillary Rosen. Um, she on television said that Anne Romney had quote never worked a day in her life, um, and hence that you know uh, that Mitt Romney should not consider her a viable source of insight or wisdom <laughs> when it came to women's issues and the economy. And well, um, I see, I see. So yeah, so to me, that doesn't sound I mean, there's like a sort of mommy wars interpretation of this, like, yes, you know, housework is is work and all of this. However, I think what this is also is this idea that like, they are just so rich, that she didn't have to work would be kind of how I would interpret that accusation. And I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a nice thing to say. I'm not saying it's a fair thing to say, but I would see it as kind of in that realm. And I think that that's something that's changed as it's become sort of self-evident that even in fairly upper middle class circles, it's not really feasible to raise a family on one income because as Tara was saying, you know, like the price of housing, things like that. Um, I think the stigmatization is like very much rooted in this sort of economic aspect, if that makes sense. That it's, it's saying like, you didn't have to work. It's not so much like you weren't ambitious. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a bunch of things that I'm thinking all at once. I mean, first of all, just going back to Helen Andrews, she is working exactly as she's delivering this speech, right? Like, Oh my God, the bio at the end. Sorry, it's just extremely funny how you get to the end of the piece and it's like, women should stay over there. Helen Andrews is a senior editor at the American Conservative and author of, it's like, ah. Yeah, right. I mean, exactly. Although I do think these issues are very complicated and that all of us are sort of grappling with a lot of contradictions in our own lives. So I'll say that. But yeah, as as we're making this critique, we're all working too. So, I mean, I, I think it's important to say that. There's, there's a couple of other things that I think about a lot with this. Um, Catherine Liu, professor at, I think it's UC Irvine, wrote a book called Virtue Hoarders. And in that book, she talks about um, how the feminist movement basically sort of settled for equality being the right to compete in a ruthless labor market. And there are, you know, for one thing, working class women have always worked. So we're, we're talking about a certain class of people right now. But also, I think, I mean, I think it's, uh, I know that I was sort of raised with that idea of the Betty Friedan, like problem that has no name and that, that if I'm not working, I don't feel fulfilled kind of on a spiritual level almost. Like I, I, I really bought into that and I've come to question that a lot. And I think part of how I've come to question that is looking at women's lives in other cultures um, just through extended family and, and seeing how much meaning and purpose they have from sort of being the glue that holds society together. And also from my experience of the pandemic and um and just how difficult that was to navigate um, as a single person at that time. And so I think there's also this sort of baked in assumption that all, all fulfillment comes from work. And I question that a lot. Um, and then one other point I want to go back to, Kat, you were talking about a failure of imagination. I find that point really powerful because part of what I did when I was doing that documentary is go, okay, well, I'm heartbroken that I haven't had children. I very much wanted a family life, but then, okay, let's, let's stop fighting that reality and think about, let's use our imagination and think about what kind of adventure life could be if, if I just surrender to the fact that's not how my life has gone. And actually that imagination piece is extraordinarily difficult for a lot of reasons. And I think, you know, part of it is if you have children, you know what you're doing for the next 18 years. 
and you have built-in milestones, you have built-in communities through schools and all those kinds of things. Whereas if you don't have that, you really are making it up from scratch all the time, which can be very um, difficult. And I also think that um, we don't have a lot of models for a different kind of life. And so one of the models I looked at was like Gloria Steinem. And uh, I had just read her memoir and, you know, she's someone who has had a really incredible life and was on the road a ton. And that appealed to me at the time, you know, but now, and this is coming back to Helen Andrews because Helen writes about Gloria Steinem in the introduction to her book, Boomers. But now the idea of being on the road, like 70, 80% of the time for the next 40 years does not sound appealing to me at all. It sounds alienating and rootless. And the point that Helen Andrews makes about Gloria Steinem in her book, which is um, not a particularly nice point, but she, you know, Gloria Steinem came from a really difficult family. Her father was basically, as Helen Andrews puts it, a con man. And her mother had multiple nervous breakdowns after her father left. And So here you have a a woman who has seen the worst of men and the worst of family life. And and why are we looking, again, I feel like almost mean-spirited saying this, but I do think it's a relevant point. Why are we looking to her to give us alternatives? Why why is she the one giving us a roadmap? I don't know. What do you guys think? God, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I I think... I think that's interesting about Gloria Steinem in particular, but I'm thinking also of Helen Andrews mentioning um, Supreme Court justices who don't have children. Mm-hmm. And she sort of fills it in some backstory wherein they are disappointed about this and that's not what they had wanted from their lives. But we don't know that, you know, because she's sort of saying like demographically, like that, you know, they would have been women who maybe had access to the pill, but but like she's talking about, you know, society hasn't really figured out sort of the other side of things so well but like why are they not also models of a fulfilled life you know what I mean like I I feel like Gloria Steinem is very sort of unique Mm -hmm. also yeah there's a there's a whole literature that has sprung up in the last like five ten years of women who are exactly trying to grapple with these questions and uh, I'm thinking like of Emily Witt's book, Future Sex. And but there's a whole bunch of them of turning 30 or turning 40 and like trying to figure out how to have a different life because marriage and kids haven't happened. And like, how do you have a fulfilling life? And as a whole, I, I wish I could find a book like that that had some answers. But as a whole, it's a very dispiriting genre of books. It, it's like, it's a lot of... Um, a lot of casual sex that doesn't fulfill the author. It's a lot of um, kind of social loneliness. It's a lot of trying a bunch of things that don't work. Like, again, I wish I could find a book that would answer this in a more satisfactory way. One of the things that it always comes back to is this idea of chosen family, which I think is, um, I I think it's a, a bit of a myth. And In Louise Perry's book, she addresses this idea and she says, okay, well, let's look at some of the feminists who came before us who did have chosen families. And the one she picks is uh, Shalumath Firestone. So Shalumath Firestone was mentally ill and died alone in her apartment because she had a falling out with uh, the different feminist groups that she was in and had no one to take care of her and probably died of starvation. Like... I know that's a really downer point to make, but but some of these solutions just don't strike me as solutions at all. So I have a question about um, you know sort of what you're describing. It's it's interesting that I I think that we do tend when we talk about this to focus on like the very end of life. You know the the prospect that if you don't have the family, you know if you don't get married and have the children, your fate as a woman is that you're going to die alone in squalor and be eaten by your cat. Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that, you know, I I understand why that kind of captivates people because it is horrifying. Although, of course, you know, by the time that happens to you, like personally, you're not going to care anymore, right? You're dead. Like you don't care what happens if the cat eats you. But um, 
I, I do think that it's interesting that we, we tend to kind of ignore the intervening decades in between the woman just, you know, reaching the point at which she didn't have a companion or children and the point at which she died alone and was eaten by the cat. Like there's a lot of life in there. I'm sorry. And <laughs> this is very vivid. And I just saw some very nice cats this morning in the neighborhood. And I'm allergic to cats. I can't have one, but I, I admire them and I think of what pretty creatures they are. And now I, I'm starting to reconsider. Anyway. Uh, well, so an interesting little bit of trivia is um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but this is this is why my dog is yelling in the background. He wants me to tell you about this bit of trivia, which is that if you are a, a person living alone and you have pets, if you die, your dog will not eat you unless things get really dire, like many, many days pass and the dog is starving and there's really no other option but to eat your corpse. Cats will eat you right away like immediately like they, like the body will not even be cold before they start to eat you so well, you don't expect them to eat a cold meal <laughs> it's no it's true they're very finicky in that way um but to return to <laughs> this always happens this is why it's feminine chaos <laughs> yeah. it's, it always happens and it's always my fault sorry oh no no it's i, I don't um, think so but to return to the topic at hand, I think, you know, Tara, as you were saying, you know, it is hard to find these narratives, you know, of, of women who kind of went their own way. And I think that maybe one of the one of the places to look for that is to look for stories actually about married women, married couples who didn't have children, um, mm. because often, you know, it turns out that together, you know, even in this like very small family of two interesting things happen. And I just wonder if there's something to be said for, you know, if children, even if children are not part of the equation, because that's sort of where this conversation always centers. It's like, oh my God, what if no children? Um, that if there's a companion, that's yes. still a family of sorts. Um, and I think about, you know, I feel like there are lots of interesting stories of women who were married, you know, who were creators in some way, you know, artists, writers, you know, who didn't end up having kids um, either because they couldn't or because they married too late or whatever it was. Um, but I think that there are some fascinating stories there that, that don't end up getting told because, number one, the fact that the woman was living in the company of a man makes it seem somehow less than legitimate from a feminist perspective. And two, because they were too busy doing what they were doing to ever stop and be like, I'm going to write down what I'm doing. Doing and why and how as a roadmap for other people who end up in this position. Mm -hmm. I love that point. I love that point. And I think that's something that, um, that it had never occurred to me and that I think um, you're right. Like that's, it's, it is a completely different experience um, being non-single as opposed to being single and grappling with those questions. And even like, again, going back to the conservatives, all that literature on, um, how important marriage is, I think, really stands. I, you know, just financially, um, emotionally, logistically, in every way. I think that is a is a really important point. Yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in on a couple of things here about like um, the sort of issue of um, memoirs and roadmaps and all of this. That I think people's life stories are often quite bleak, whether whatever, where, you know, sort of whatever they're coming from family wise, so you get a lot of, you know, writing by mothers that makes parenthood look quite bleak, and not at all like something community giving or meaning providing and very much more about like, the sort of the stresses of it, you know, and the, the bad parts. So um, I don't know, like, I think, that can be tricky with memoirs, right? Um, but also, um, yeah, and, and why why that? But Kat, to your point about sort of marriage without children, that seems like you don't hear about it so much because partly I think it's this sort of the very conservative, sort of like the, the cat lady cliche, right? You know, like there's on the one hand, there's the woman with her, you know, five children and the flowing hair and the flowing dress. And on the other hand, there's the cat lady. And that the possibility of sort of many, many different life paths, including married without children, including, you know, coupled, but not married, and you know, all sorts of different life paths are sort of erased by this kind of cliche of that there are only two or even like married, but you have only one or two children and not like 
50 children, you know? I'm just thinking like memes and picturing like these memes you see where there's on the one side, the woman who's beautiful and has like 50 children and like there are flowers everywhere. And then on the other hand, there's like that bitter, you know, woman who's the the cat has eaten off one of her limbs and <laughs> sorry, I can't stop with this thing with these um, apparently very carnivorous beasts. Um, yeah, I guess I, I feel like I should, as as the mother of two children, say something about the whole having it all. Do I have it all? I'm gonna say no. I don't have it all. Um, I don't think, for, as on a personal level, that the workforce is entirely like. I think it's still very much structured to make things make sense for a single earner and who is the person who is not um, pregnant, giving birth, nursing, all of these things. Um, Yeah, I think there's a ways to go. However, I also don't want to be like overly bleak in that um, like I've done a lot of work since having my first child and it, it does not immediately after giving birth but like it is I don't want people to think it's like impossible to do more than one of these things I think it's I think what I mean my ideal solution just you know having kind of been through all of this quite recently would be like a much much better system for taking a year off per child I think would be and I think Canada is closer to that than the United States certainly but I don't think it's quite there either and I think um like, cause I just, I don't think that there is any widespread desire among women, um, to just, just to be mothers forever. Cause like, what does that mean when you have an older child? Um, but I do think that there needs to be just sort of a system in place that acknowledges that while you're, you know, like extremely pregnant right after you've given birth, when you have a very young baby, if you're a woman, you have kind of like specific things that you probably want slash have to be doing. Um, And I think the American system where it's assumed that you have a baby and you're like pumping in some closet when you have like a seven week old, I don't think that that makes any sense. Have you guys heard of the concept of the ideal worker before? No. Tell us about that. So I think it was in this book called Overwhelmed by, uh, I think it was Bridget Schultz. And um, it's apparently a human resources concept. And I don't know if it's still in practice or anything, but let me describe this, this ideal worker to you. So this person can work overtime at the drop of a hat. They can travel without notice. They do not have um, any hobbies. They don't have any uh, ongoing commitments outside of the workplace, like religious commitments or anything like that. And if someone in their household is, uh, you know, sick or needing care, that is not the person that is responsible for it. So what does that sound like? It It sounds sounds like like academia. Oh my goodness. Okay. That is (laughs) academia right there. I mean, it's lots of things, but I just have, I mean, my husband's a professor, so I I see this just in terms of like the travel that you're supposed to be able to move for different postdocs, like do one postdoc in one country, another in another country, travel to conferences all around the world. Um, and it's totally still set up for, for that type of person. Absolutely. Yeah. And who, who is that type of person, right? Well, it's, it's a 1950s man. It's, it's a man whose, you know, nutrition is provided for him, whose house is cleaned for him, whose social life is organized for him. That, that's, you can only work like that if, if you have someone in the background supporting. And it, so it doesn't, I don't think it works for women at all. I think it works terribly for mothers, but I also don't think it works well for, for single men either because they become really lonely and really isolated and eat crap food. And like, I don't think it works for anybody. Then I guess maybe the less, the, the workplace needs to find um, a home for the less than ideal workers. <laughs> <laughs> closet somewhere suboptimal put on put on one's cover letter i am a suboptimal worker please consider me for this position as suboptimal employee but isn't that the whole thing now right the the quiet quitting which is what it's called if you just you work yeah you work you meet expectations but that's it and that's considered quiet quitting yeah yeah i mean well and what would what position would the ideal worker have been in during the pandemic right 
Like you yeah. would have been alone dealing with like lockdown by yourself. Nobody wants that. Well, pandemic, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that was so miserable for everybody for different reasons. And I feel like that gets into this sort of nebulous world of like who had it yeah. <laughs> most bad. Because I think, you know, like if you're just with your partner, you might be driving each other crazy. If you're with your partner and small children or just small children, that even more so perhaps, you know, losing your mind. And if you're alone, you're all alone. <laughs> right. And so I think I think that all of these are potentially pretty miserable. So hopefully, hopefully there's no more um, pangolins being eaten or whatever, or distributed, aerosolated. (laughs) I don't know. I hope there's not another one of these. This is the most interesting theory of how the pandemic began that I've ever heard. The idea of like aerosolized pangolins. Is that not it? Wasn't that? (laughs) Wasn't that? Yeah, I mean, as as I understand it, and I am a scientist, um, <laughs> China used an invisible jet to disperse aerosolized pangolins all over the world, and that's why we're in this the situation that we're in right now. The only possible explanation. I have not heard that one. Wow, it's the only explanation that could make sense. I don't know. I may I may be conflating this with the plot of a very silly movie starring Jared Butler. So I don't know. Don't take my word for it. <laughs> It was called Echo Storm or Geo Storm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so as we kind of come towards the end of this conversation, I'm wondering, do we want to linger on the question of how this impacts people in the workforce? Or do we want to talk about the challenges that face people even before they start thinking about having children in finding someone to have children with? Because, Tara, you mentioned that the way the dating landscape is right now um, it's it's not good <laughs> to be very elegant about it. Let's talk about the dating landscape. Okay. So what's up with the dating? What's up with the dating landscape? As you were having these conversations with people, um, what what did those conversations reveal? Um, that men and women were both incredibly dissatisfied with the dating landscape for for different reasons. Um, and I think I think some of this comes back to like, unfortunately, we're going to have to acknowledge the difference between men and women here. I'm so sorry to have to do that. But I do what? Um, but I do think like when you look at Louise Perry's book, she's basically noting that men and women have different bell curves for this um, trait of socio sexuality, not meaning um how much sex you have, but how much kind of novel sex you have with different people. And that, you know, there's, there, there is more predilection in men, although obviously there's many, many exceptions, but there's just like a different bell curve distribution of that trait than there is for women. And getting back to like Rob Henderson's point that you have the dating apps basically being dominated by the small group of men who are very interested in novel sex, like new sex with new people and new partners. And um, that for women, that, that, that in general, again, over, you know, over a whole population are not as interested in that. And yet the whole dating landscape is now geared toward that. And that I think um, for women, I think a lot of women I talk to just get more and more disappointed by the experience. And for men that I talk to, I'm often talking to the the 80%, not the 20% of alpha males who are out there, you know, doing all the dating, but the 80% of men are just finding it incredibly dispiriting and lonely and um, frustrating and all of those things. And so I don't think it's working very well. Uh, But what I'm kind of heartened by is I, I do think that there's a bit of a turn away from these apps that's happening. And I like, this is a gut instinct. So this is completely not factually based at all, but I do think, I just sense that people are starting to meet in more spontaneous ways again. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, You know, I was thinking about how, along with stigmatizing a lot of the ways that people used to meet, you know, obviously like it used to be that about a third of people met their spouse at work and now, you know, presently, and I, I do hope that we kind of retreat from this because I think it's sort of untenable, but presently the idea is that it's, it's actually very inappropriate to do that, that anybody who forms a connection at work has done something inherently very, very creepy and wrong. Um, and so, you know, as you sort of eliminate 
the connections that arise from people being together organically, maybe like sparking interest in each other as they get to know each other outside of a dating context, you know, where it's like you're you're just getting to see this person as they are every day or at least frequently. And so you you develop an attraction that's based more upon the reality of who that person is um, that, you know, that that's sort of eliminated by the use of apps where instead you've got an algorithm serving up someone to you who checks the, the boxes you think you want but obviously you know not only are you not necessarily going to be the best judge because humans are not the best judge of what they actually want or what's going to make them happy we're actually like notoriously terrible at this um but in addition to, you know, like it's ineffective and it's also like a full time job that you have to like log onto the app and dedicate time to like searching for a mate. And it turns it into work in a way that um, just I don't know, it strikes me as exhausting on top of everything else. I, I think that that is absolutely the case. And I think that there's so much I, with the apps of so much back and forth, so many connections that don't necessarily go anywhere. Like the, it's, a, it's an illusion of choice, I think, for most people that I've heard from on this. And I think it's also, um, again, pretty alienating. Like this, this is not people living, breathing people standing across from you, for example, in a dog park talking about the weather or politics or whatever you end up talking about that day. This is like something completely different, removed from your day-to-day life that is like a project that you need to tend to all the time. <laughs> I, just, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's a good development. And again, I'm 46. So I, you know, my dating life, I have seen how it used to be versus how it is now. And I like things changed dramatically when smartphones came in and then they changed dramatically again when the apps became the dominant way of meeting. And I just, most people I know who are dating are just not happy at all with those developments. So should, should as an alternative to the dating apps, people make personal websites about <laughs> themselves and whether or not, I think we have to end on this note. I mean, we're not ending yet, but just to, yeah. Um, should people do that? I think everyone should get a dog. That's what I think. But let's talk about this dating <laughs> website um, development because I there is this new thing of people sort of putting it all out there and trying to bypass the apps in in sort of creative ways. Yeah. So I saw one of these. I do not want to discuss who exactly this person is. This is not that it would even be doxing because this person's publicly talking about it. But uh, a young man made such a website. I did not realize that this was a wider phenomenon when I saw this. And the thing that immediately struck me was that it just seems like having one's head a little bit too much up one's own self, because it's so much about this guy who seems perfectly normal and nice. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with him. Uh, but he is a member of the 80%. I, I would Sorry? just say that he's not the alpha male. Um, so he's, yeah, he's going to be one of these guys who is striking out on the apps. Right. Well, that's that's why he's he's doing this. Um, but it, it just seems like he's given a lot of thought to himself. He's thought about what he wants. He's thought about what sort of person he is. He has this whole narrative about himself. And it just doesn't feel like there's room for a woman or or only for a woman who's really like not the like like it's really it's going to be about him. Like that seemed maybe like a flaw of that approach, I almost wonder, because like any dating app or whatever, you have to have stuff about yourself. But this to really lean into that, as it were, more leaning in, seems um, potentially troubling. Yeah, I see what you're saying totally. And I, I see that a lot, actually, in like that same ethos in younger feminists of like, what is it that I want? You know, how do I go about getting exactly what I want in life? Um, so I know what you're talking about. I just think there's two things behind that, right? Like the whole culture is pushing us towards that level of individualism and the idea of self-actualization. But then also, what does solitude do, right? In you know, in a in a really healthy sense, if you're if you have a full life, then it gives you this time to sort of think deeply about your life. But if your whole life is solitude, and you're just going to sit around thinking about yourself, inevitably, like in ruminating, right? Yeah. And you see the result of that. Yeah, I mean, the thing that strikes me about this, I, I, I feel friendlier toward what the guy's trying to do than Phoebe does. Um, but what strikes me is that all of these 
people, um, whether they're, you know, dedicating a lot of time to looking for a match on the apps or whether they're trying to circumvent the apps by like putting it all out there and letting the ladies come to them, um, is that everyone is trying to find a way to hack the process of trial and error that allows you to actually find somebody you're compatible with. Like they're trying to get around the point uh, or the period rather where you are dating people and, and it's not working out, you know, like, and you, like you're there for a few months, it doesn't work out. You split up, you've each learned something about, you know, what kind of life you want and also what kind of life you don't want. And experiencing that kind of disappointment is very necessary. I think to eventually figuring out not just what you want, but also what you can live with that isn't necessarily ideal, which is not really about settling so much as being realistic about like how much of a match you're going to get. This is um, something that Dan Savage talks about Mm -hmm. all the time, where it's like the person that you are going to be with for life. Like you're lucky if you're 80% compatible, but people think they can hold out for like- That came up in that thread, the, the one about the how did people meet- before the internet, were they always settling that viral thread? Um, I think a later tweet in that thread was something about, um, Oh yes. Like how would you find somebody who meets your every need? And all these replies are like, you're not ever going to find somebody who meets your every need. <laughs> like, no. And yeah. that's just not how we looked at it 20 years ago. It's just not like, it, it's just not because when people are right in front of you, it's, it's a different calculation. It's, it's a completely different algorithm. It's totally different. Well, I almost think that this the website is worse than an app because an app in principle is that you're meeting up with somebody and this is just filtering a bit and not, you know, like getting anything sort of like because the idea is that you'd be meeting multiple people, as I understand it, that you would not, there wouldn't be this expectation that that everything is figured out on the computer. Whereas I think the website approach, it's like, it's expecting to figure out even more. It's It's throwing even more of it online and the touching of grass becomes more elusive touching of grass or something else yeah that was don't don't worry that was that was a little intended. yes yes I feel a bit friendlier toward his project as well because it does seem a little bit like some kind of line in the sand like I'm not going to allow these crazy winds of our culture to mean that I don't keep trying that I don't keep um looking for human connection and to me that's a really human instinct behind that yeah I don't know. I just think he'd do better in a coffee shop maybe, but I also think he'll be fine. Like, I guess part of why I'm a little harsh on him is that I think he will actually be absolutely fine. He's pretty young, actually. He's like in his 20s. He's and, 29. Yeah, but you know, that's for a man that's really quite young and I think he'll he'll be fine. No, no double standards here. We're going to apply the same one to everyone. He is a crone. He's over okay. the hill. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. How are his eggs doing? I'm, I'm sure his guys still swim like champs. Uh, and, you know, we will put his dating profile in the show notes just in case any female listeners are interested in looking him up. Wow. We're, we're giving him a little boost. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've spent enough time, you know, perusing this dating profile for research purposes that it would be wrong not to throw the guy a bone. Well, that's to say we all cheer him on. We wish you well. We hope that you we all win. wish him well. We do all wish him well. Yeah. You can do it. All right. Um, anything else to say about this, Tara? I want to give you the last word on on everything that we've talked about before we sign off. Yeah, I guess I just think it's it's just so important to have these conversations. I mean, I, I think a lot of this stuff just doesn't get talked about, both because it's very personal and it's very difficult for people, but also because the sort of winds of our culture have just gone in a completely different direction. So I'm just glad, I'm just glad to be able to talk about it. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's important to keep talking about it and also to keep saying to like the younger generation that there are, this is a complicated moment and there are very complicated forces at play and that it probably isn't always going to be this way. Like, as, as I said a few minutes ago, that I do feel tides turning and that um, if enough people are dissatisfied with the state of things, which I really think they are, that there will be new ways around all of this and um, get a dog. And get a dog. Yeah. Good advice. And not maybe a cat if you're planning to um, <laughs> feel over anytime soon. <laughs> it's true. If you get a cat, make sure that the cat predeceases you. Mm-hmm. And this has been Feminine Chaos. Thank you, Tara. <laughs> Thank you, Tara.
Thanks, Kat. Thanks, Phoebe. Bye. Bye. Bye.